It is always such a joy to be able to sing these Christmas carols. For those of us who know and love Christ, it's an opportunity for us to express the doxologies that are welled up within our heart. For those that don't know, don't know Christ, it's boring, it's silly, it's mythical. But I'm glad to hear you sing as you do. This morning I would like to speak to you about some concepts surrounding the Christmas story that many times people are unaware of, even many believers. I've entitled my discourse to you, O Come Let Us Adore Him. We just sang that song. And so we're going to be looking at a few passages of Scripture this morning. And what a blessing it is to come together and to worship and to look into the Word of God, especially in this post-Christian culture. It's interesting, isn't it, that this is a culture that is doing everything it can to remove every vestige of Christianity from the public square. And it's been rather successful. I mean, how often do you even see a nativity scene? And I think it's illegal, isn't it, in most public places, because somebody might be offended Children can't sing Christ-honoring Christmas carols in school because it is offensive. You're not even supposed to say Merry Christmas, right? You're supposed to say Happy Holidays or some other ridiculous, politically correct nonsense. I noticed that stores, some stores now offer what I would call sodomite nutcrackers, wearing rainbow soldier uniforms and holding a a gay pride uh, banner to flaunt their depravity. Friends, the moral freefall in our country is absolutely staggering. And we see it especially during the Christmas season where there's such a contrast between darkness and light. But for all of us who were equally as vile as anyone, those of us who have been saved by God's grace, we can come together and sing as we just have, O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. From the outset, let me ask you, is that true of you? Do you truly in your heart adore Christ the Lord? Meaning, do you love him? Do you worship him? Do you obey him? Is he the joy of your life? Do you ascribe honor that's due his name? Do you speak of his glory and his grace in words of praise to other people? Is your life a living testimony of the wisdom and the mercy and the faithfulness and sovereignty of God? Do you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? that others might see the truth of the gospel and be saved. Is that part of who you are? Do you long for that future day when you will see Christ face to face? Do you call yourself to worship as David did, saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. You know, the church exists to exalt Christ, to edify 
saints and to evangelize sinners. That's why we're here. Is that why you are here? I hope it is. Jesus said that true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, God-centered worship will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Your emotions will be regulated by the truth of the Word of God. And those who worship Him out of a supernatural spiritual life that they enjoy are people that understand the truth, know the truth, and live the truth. And what an affront it is to, for example, come into the presence of God in prayer and you're prattling on with some meaningless gibberish or some strings of cliches that aren't really heartfelt. Pretending to speak to God when all you're doing is just going through the motions. And what an insult to the holiness of God to be so detached from conscious thought when you come into his presence that as you're talking with him, your mind begins to drift off and you're thinking about something else. What disrespect to the Most High to come in to a place of worship. You're here in body, but you're not here in spirit. And what hypocrisy to claim that you are united to Christ, that you love Christ, but during the week you have no sweet communion with Him. You have no desire to be in His Word. You have no passion to know more of Him. You have no secret devotion in prayer, no inward joy. Very few believers today can say with the Apostle Paul, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Dear Christian, if this is you, there's something terribly wrong with your walk with Christ. I hope that you truly know him. You have left your first love. Your soul has gone in silent search of other lovers and you have found them and it's not Christ. You have forfeited the unspeakable joy, dear friends, and the spiritual power that comes when we spend time with the Lord in private so that when we come together in public, we are expressing what's already in our heart. While addressing the Honorable Parliament of England assembled at Westminster, On September 3rd, 1650, the great Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks said this, quote, Oh, that you would look to your communion with God. Keep up that, increase in that, and that will more and more fit you for all that high and hard service that you are and may be put upon. The communion with God that is the life of your graces, the sweetener of all ordinances, providences, and mercies, the strengthener of your hearts and hands, the soul of your comforts and the crown of your souls. Nothing like this to fence you against temptations, to sweeten all afflictions and to make you own God and stand for God and cleave to God in the face of all troubles and oppositions. And then he said this, A man high in communion with God is a man too big for temptations to conquer or troubles to bring under. Communion with God 
It makes bitter things sweet and massive things light. Souls that have no communion or but little communion with God, they are usually as soon conquered as tempted, as soon vanquished as assaulted. End quote. Would that we could go before Congress and say the same thing. You know, God hates hypocrisy, but he loves sincerity. I think of what he said through the prophet Amos in chapter 5, verse 21 to Israel. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And sadly, too often for Christians, we come together to worship, as I say, in body but not in spirit. And when it comes time for Christmas, all we tend to think about are presents and parties and family gatherings. And we give very little thought to really what it's all about. And that is the magnificent truths of Christ coming to earth and all that that means. So this morning, I want to encourage you as well as instruct you, which is my responsibility as a pastor teacher before the Lord. I want to instruct you regarding the person and the work of Christ. And we're going to do this by looking at some key individuals in the Christmas story that are typically not thought about very much. And we're going to look at the real heart of worship that was proven by their reaction to the incarnation of Christ. Now, before we look at the text, throughout the Bible we see that there are many promises of a coming Savior. In fact, if we were to go to the Old Testament, we could see that approximately 350 prophecies speak to this, that a Messiah is going to come and deliver his people from their sin and eventually establish his kingdom. For this reason, the risen Jesus rebuked his disciples. Remember on the road to Emmaus? They were confused about who he was. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Wouldn't it have been wonderful to have been there? And at some level, we can go there even as we come here or anytime we look into his word. I also find it interesting that at the close of that encounter, those disciples said, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Dear friends, if you have a shallow understanding of the word of God, you will have shallow worship and you will have a shallow life. So as we approach the Christmas season, We want to dig deep into the word and see some of these magnificent truths. 
And it's my prayer that your heart will also be burning within you because of what you hear from his word. This morning, I want to draw your attention to actually two angelic announcements. I have four in my notes, but we're only going to get to two today. Angelic announcements surrounding the birth of Christ. Eventually, we're going to look at all four. We're going to look at four different people, each proclaiming four unique fulfillments to prophecy. And in each case, we're going to see Jesus depicted in four different ways. And I pray that we'll all get lost in the wonder once again of what God has done by sending his son. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus as the king priest, as well as Jesus as the son of God. And then the next time we get together, Lord willing, we will look at Jesus as the savior from sin and Jesus as the glory of God. So first, I want you to focus on this idea especially at Christmas time, of Jesus, this babe that we look at in the manger, as being the king priest. The king priest. Try bringing that up in the barber shop or the beauty shop. Isn't it great to celebrate Christmas? By the way, did you know that he was the king priest that God sent to earth? I'm sure you'll hear a pin drop when you say that. Here we would begin in Luke 1, if you want to turn there. The context here is that of the temple being forsaken by the presence of God. Ichabod had been written across its doorway, which means the glory has departed, and certainly the Shekinah glory had departed from the temple some 400 years earlier. God had not spoken to his covenant people in 400 years. The Jews had been floundering around in ritualistic Judaism, pretending to worship God. They were filled with legalism and hypocrisy and frustration, and they were still awaiting the Messianic kingdom. But there remained a faithful remnant, worshipers of of Yahweh, those who truly loved God with all of their heart, godly people looking for the Messiah, And this is what we're going to see here in this text. Suddenly, after 400 years of silence, God breaks his silence by sending his messenger to a faithful priest serving in the temple whose name was Zacharias. Notice Luke 1, beginning in verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? 
for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Now, let me give you a little context here. It's really very fascinating and very important. If we were to go back to First Chronicles in the Old Testament, in chapter 24, you will see that there were 24 divisions of temple priests, and each division would serve twice per year and on special occasions. And if we look back there, we would see that Zacharias was of the division of Abijah the eighth division. And so both he and his wife Elizabeth were therefore from the priestly line of Aaron. Remember that, very important. In Luke 1 and verse 9, we read that his lot fell to burn incense. So it was his time to burn incense. And we know, according to Exodus 30, that God gave the precise formula and the ingredients for the incense. Any variation of that meant certain death. You couldn't use it personally. It couldn't be used outside of the Holy of Holies, the holy place in the temple. It would always equal death. You remember uh, um, uh, Nadab and Abihu were executed for violating uh, that command, which you can read about in Leviticus 10. So may I remind you folks, God is serious about his holiness. He is serious about his instructions and our obedience. And a priest had to be selected for this most sacred service of worship. In fact, this particular service, a priest could not do more than once in his lifetime. So what was happening here with Zacharias was a once in a lifetime deal. It was a profound honor, the greatest moment in his life. And we know with respect to incense in the temple, it burned perpetually in the most holy place of the temple. The priest would stand just in front of the veil that divided the Holy of Holies um, from the holy place. And one lone priest would enter and offer incense to the Lord every, every morning and evening. And the fragrance of the incense was considered to be symbolic of uh, the prayers of the faithful, those seeking for forgiveness, those longing for their Messiah to appear. And so how fitting that God would break upon the scene at this particular moment in history with an angelic messenger and suddenly answer their prayers. And again, this is a forgotten aspect of the Christmas story. It's kind of the prelude that leads up to it. So Zacharias is told that his aged wife is going to have a son. Verse 17, he will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, which, by the way, was predicted some 400 years earlier in Malachi 4, verses 4 through 6. 
In verse 18, we see how he doubts. He's not, not sure about this whole thing. Verse 19, the angel says to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. If you go on to read the story, you'll see that the people are waiting for Zacharias to come out of the Holy of Holies. I'm sure they're wondering, did God kill him in there? Because if you slip up, you're dead. As he's not coming out, they're wondering why the delay. He finally comes out and he's unable to speak. He's making signs. The people think maybe he's had some kind of a vision. And then months later, after John was born, and after the circumcision ceremony of the child, we read how Zacharias writes his name on a tablet that his name would be John. And then immediately, God loosened his tongue so he could speak, and he did so, he began to praise God. The text says that he was filled with the Spirit, and we read what he said in Luke 1, beginning in verse 68 which is sometimes called the Benedictus, the first word in the Latin translation. Blessed, it says, be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. A reference to what was predicted some 650 plus years earlier in Isaiah 40 and verse 3. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon us who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Again, a prophecy out of Isaiah 9 and verse 2. And then he closes by saying, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Boy, there's the proper attitude of worship when considering the incarnate Christ. The phrase where it says, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, as I say, is out of Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 3, where the prophet prophesied, saying, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then the phrase back in Luke 1 at the end where he says that he will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. That comes out of Isaiah 9 and verse 2 where the prophet says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. 
It's also important to note that this angelic announcement fulfilled Malachi's prophecy in chapter 3 and verse 1. Malachi was written in the late 5th century B.C. There we read, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, referring to Jesus, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, it was customary in the ancient Near East for a person called a forerunner to go ahead of a king and announce his coming, to prepare the way, to remove obstacles in the road and so forth. And we read in Matthew's gospel in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. John the Baptist was the herald of the coming king, the messenger of the covenant, the coming king and priest. Now, mind you, these prophecies were partially fulfilled at Jesus' first coming, but they will be completely fulfilled at his second coming when he appears in his millennial temple. Jesus will come to both reward and judge those who have been faithful to his covenant promises. As a side note, if we were to go to Ezekiel's prophecy, in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, we see a description of the departed glory of God from the temple. Then in chapter 44, verses 1 and 2, there's a description of his return through the eastern gate of the millennial temple that is coming, and he's going to return from the very direction from which he departed. And in that day, beloved, Jesus, the king priest, will dwell in his temple, which will be in the very center district given over to the Lord as we read those texts. And then what's interesting in the final verse of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35, we read this. The city shall be 18,000 cubits round about, and the name of the city from that day shall be, The Lord is there. You see, dear friends, at that moment, the unconditional, unilateral, irreversible covenants that God made with Abraham to Israel will ultimately be fulfilled. This will be the time of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in in Genesis 12. This will be the fulfillment of the Levitic covenant in in Numbers 25, of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. All of those things will finally be fulfilled. At that point, the presence of God will finally return and thus provide the consummation of Israel's history. But what I want you to note is all of this was set into motion on earth when John the Baptist announced the king priest's coming. 
According to Matthew 3, 1 through 3, he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, back to the angelic announcement to Zacharias in Luke 1. I, I, I trust you see here the profound significance that God first broke his silence in the temple in Jerusalem, that very place from which his, his glory had departed so many years ago. And he makes this announcement to a faithful priest. Not only that, a faithful priest offering incense. Moreover, a faithful priest offering incense whose son would be the forerunner of the divine king priest that would soon come. So imagine the excitement if you were Zacharias. It would be exciting enough to have an angel standing before you, but then to hear all of this and to immediately put it all together. No doubt he remembered the words of Psalm 110. Fascinating passage, especially the first seven verses there. It exalts Christ as both the, the, the holy king that will rule the world as well as the, the royal high priest that is going to someday come and build his glorious temple where the world will worship. And all of those, are, all of those things are described in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, a time when Jesus will reign as Messiah king upon the earth from his millennial temple. But in Psalm 110 verse 4, it's fascinating. God speaks through the psalmist, and here's what he says. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. Pretty profound, right? The Lord has sworn and will not relent. In other words, pay close attention, because you can take this one to the bank, folks. That's what he's saying. That's a paraphrase, but that's what he's saying. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek? Why didn't he say according to the order of Aaron? This is a passage quoted many years later by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 and verse 6. So, as good Bible students who want to know more of the glory of God and all that he's up to, we need to look into this, right? Yes. Let me give you the context here. You will recall that Melchizedek was the king of pre-Israelite Jerusalem. It was called Salem in the days of Abraham. He was also a priest of the true God, according to Genesis 14 and verse 18. Abraham, we know, recognized this. You will recall that he paid tithes to Melchizedek and he received blessings from him, all of which proved his superiority to Abraham. And if we study Hebrews closely, especially chapter 7, we will discover that the priesthood of, of Melchizedek was superior to, superior to the Aaronic priesthood, which began in the days of Moses. The priesthood of Melchizedek was established many centuries before that of Aaron. That priesthood is unending according to Hebrews 7 and verse 3. Whereas the priesthood of Aaron, from which the Levites came, which Zacharias was a part, ended in A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. 
The, the priesthood of the Levites was also hereditary, but not so with that of Melchizedek. And what's also fascinating is there is no genealogical record of Melchizedek's birth or death, all of which, dear friends, pictured the priestly kingship, the eternal priestly kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, not Levi, and his priesthood is therefore superior to the, to the law, which was the authority of the Levites. But when Christ appeared, remember, the Levitical system was replaced by a new priest offering a new covenant because of a new sacrifice, Jesus himself. And you will remember, too, that the law of Moses and the Aaronic priesthood could never allow a person full access into the presence of God, right? Couldn't happen. So there were never-ending sacrifices. And it is for this reason that Jesus said to the Jews who struggled under the weight of, of the old covenant, the Levitical priesthood, in John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father but through, but through me. I am the access. And we read in Hebrews 10 that the law was only, quote, a shadow of the good things to come. So Hebrews 7 helps us understand that the priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to that of the Levites in that the Melchizedekian priesthood was universal, it was royal, it was righteous, it was peaceful, and it was unending. Therefore, the priesthood of Christ is superior, a superior priesthood. And ultimately, this will be the glorious outcome of Gabriel's announcement to Zacharias. So Gabriel comes to this Levitical priest that could trace his roots all the way back to Aaron and tells him his wife Elizabeth will bear a son who would be the forerunner of the king-priest from the order of Melchizedek. So Zacharias' son would be the one prophesied again in Malachi 3.1 as the messenger who would make the way clear for the messenger of the covenant who will come to the temple. And according to Hebrews 7 verse 21, he will be, quote, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, referring to Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that a comforting thought? Right now, that's what he's doing for us. He goes on to say, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. 
Now, beloved, here's the point as we think of the Christmas story. In God's marvelous plan of redemption, all of what Israel looked forward to, all that the sacrificial system pointed to, that the prophets predicted, all of those things were fulfilled in Christ. And may I remind you of just three, real quickly, three benefits of what Christ has done. Because of this, first of all, we can rest in Christ knowing that our sins are forgiven. Hebrews 10, 12, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down literally in the Holy of Holies. You see, there were no seats in the temple because the work was never done until Christ finished it. And when that happened, he said, it is, it is finished. This is the proper posture of the Christian, shall we say. We can sit down in our justification because we have been declared righteous. Now, we can't sit down with respect to our sanctification. No, we must remain vigilant, right? We've got to gird our loins for action, battle against sin, wear the whole armor of God, strive for righteousness, and on and on and on. On, but not so concerning our justification, whereby we have been declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. For this reason, we can sit down. We can rest in the Lord. Our sins are forgiven. We can therefore enter into the rest that is ours in Christ Jesus. And this is the grand theme, beloved, of the angelic announcement to Zacharias. Not only can we rest in Christ, but secondly, we know that because of what Christ did by coming to earth and dying for our sins, that he will conquer our enemies. Wow, what a great thought. Hebrews 10 and verse 13 goes on to say, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Dear friends, someday all of the enemies of Christ all of our enemies who hate us because we are united to him will be crushed. And I want you to remember this the next time you look at that babe in the manger. A day of divine retribution is coming. Paul spoke of this in 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 6. He says, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. So indeed, because Christ came, we can rest in Christ knowing our sins are forgiven, knowing as well that he will conquer all of our enemies. But if that isn't enough, because of this, number three, we have access to God. We can enter into his presence. We don't need a priest in order for that to happen. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. 
by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Indeed, dear friends, the veil was rent. Jesus is there. And he summons us into his holy presence, into the presence of the Father and the Spirit. What an unimaginable truth. What a wonder of wonders. What hope we have in Christ. Again, our only hope is in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, from top to bottom, from foundation to pinnacle, our hopes must be in the work of Jesus, and we must trust in him alone, or else we shall build in vain. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid. So, after 400 years of silence, the loving faithfulness of God in fulfillment of all of his covenant promises, he pursues his chosen ones once again and he sends his angel, his servant Gabriel, to proclaim these magnificent truths to this priest in the Holy of Holies, his human servant, Zechariah. So the first angelic announcement centers around the theme of Jesus, the king priest. And let me finish this morning by reminding you of the second angelic announcement that speaks of Jesus as the son of God. This, of course, is Gabriel's announcement to Mary later on in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 30. There we read, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Another amazing prophecy fulfilled, one predicted oh, almost 700 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 7, in verse 14, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now it's important for you to be reminded afresh, dear friends, the necessity for a virgin birth. Because some people will say, why was it a virgin birth? Well, it's because God's holy justice could not be satisfied apart from a perfectly holy ransom. Had Mary's offspring been totally human, that offspring would have had a sinful nature and the wages of sin is death. And had Mary's offspring been totally divine, he would not have been able to die as a man for men. The work of redemption, you see, demanded a theanthropon, a God-man, one who could supernaturally fuse the human nature and the divine to form an indissoluble union the virgin birth 
was crucial for this to happen. Moreover, a man had to suffer a punishment that only God could endure, thus requiring both. And how could Christ be our faithful high priest, one who could sympathize with our infirmities, were he not both God and man? And how could Christ be our mediator unless he, like Jacob's ladder, could somehow bridge the infinite chasm between God and man? How could Christ be our king without first becoming united to us as a man? And yet only God could reign within our hearts and have dominion over our souls for eternity. Only God could establish a kingdom a righteous kingdom that would have no end. So the virgin birth is this incredibly wonderful doctrine. God's holy and infinite justice could not be satisfied apart from a holy and infinite ransom. And only by his own provision could such a remedy be accomplished. You know, I've thought about this before. Had there been an easier way, God would have certainly found it. But this was the perfect way that could only be conceived in the mind of God. See, beloved, God could not deny his own justice. The incarnation of his son was the, in, 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 the, the inevitable, the inevitable necessity. It had to happen. Nothing but perfect righteousness could satisfy the penalty of violating perfect holiness. And so God sends his messenger Gabriel from his throne room to proclaim the stunning fulfillment of prophecy. But note what else was said in this amazing announcement in verse 30. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Then it says he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now again, bear in mind, when Gabriel the angel comes to Zacharias, he's announcing Jesus as the priest king that is going to come, that his son will herald. But here, Jesus is depicted as the son of God. And in this verse, verse 30, the Spirit of God provides for us a very concise summary of the person and the work of Christ. Notice first, he says, he will be great. We could go back to the prophecy in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. Boy, talk about being great. You can't get any greater than that. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And in this corrupt culture in which we live, a culture where we can just look at the rulers that God has placed over us, 
men and women that are as crooked as a barrel of snakes. We all know it, and they know we know it. And yet they continue to lie. Just think how different it will be when Christ, the King, Priest, the Son of God, reigns and rules. The angel also told her that he will be called the Son of the Most High, affirming once again that Jesus is the same in essence as God Most High, El Elyon, which is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek term that, that Luke uses. Folks, you can't get any higher than the Most High, right? All right, that's easy to understand. And also, thirdly, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You see, this is a fulfillment of, of the Davidic covenant all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God told David that he is going to have a son who would reign forever, in reference to the greater son, that of Jesus. And this is proven in the genealogies that we see in both Matthew as well as Luke. Beloved, we must never lose sight of these great truths as we think about what happened at Christmas when Christ came. We serve a king. We do not serve a fallen politician, a king who is our creator, our sovereign, the son of God. One of my favorite musical works is George Frederick Handel's Messiah. I had the privilege of directing that when I was a piano major many years ago at Moody Bible Institute. And one of the world's, this is one of the world's greatest masterpieces composed by one of the world's greatest and most brilliant musicians and writer. This is a, a glimpse of the unfallen mind. In fact, Beethoven said of Handel, to him I bend the knee for Handel is the greatest, ablest composer that ever lived. To be sure, this was a man that was divinely gifted by the God he loved and served. Um, if you've ever been to Westminster Abbey, you can see um, a statue there it, over his grave. It's a large marble statue of him at work, and he's composing the, the, the Messiah. And uh, he's got the, you can see it all carved here, and the, the lyrics uh, is, is to his left, and his his finger is pointing up and, and the score is open to the passage, I know that my Redeemer liveth and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Many of the texts that we have briefly covered here today are contained in that magnificent work that exalts the Savior. I have to say, my, what a contrast to the superficial drivel that we hear today in much of contemporary Christian music. But I wanted to read to you the titles of some of the specific works in the Messiah just to remind you of what true worship looks like. Because as Jesus said, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And this is what came from this man's heart. And I hope it comes from yours as well. Here's the specific works, just the titles of all that you would hear. If you haven't heard this, you need to take time to hear it. I probably listen to it at least two or three times a week. Comfort ye my people, 
Every valley shall be exalted in the glory of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide in the day of his coming? And he shall purify the sons of Levi. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth. The people that walked in darkness for, and then he says, for, for unto us a child is born. Another great musical piece. There were shepherds abiding in the field. Glory to God in the highest. I can't help when I, when I say these titles, I can, hear, I can hear it in my mind. Maybe you can as well. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. Behold the Lamb of God. He was despised and rejected of men. Surely he hath borne our griefs, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. All they that see him laugh him to scorn. He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Thy rebuke hath broken his heart. Behold and see if there be any sorrow. He was cut off out of the land of the living, but thou didst not leave his soul in hell. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. How beautiful, how beautiful are the feet. Why do the nations so furiously rage? Let us break their bonds asunder. He that dwelleth in heaven. And of course the hallelujah chorus. And he shall reign forever and ever. And then I know that my redeemer liveth. A great soprano solo that my mother used to sing quite often behold I tell you a mystery the trumpet shall sound worthy is the lamb that was slain and then a fitting conclusion amen I share this with you only to remind you that there have been and there always will be those who have been profoundly impacted by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and I trust that you will be amongst them. And to think that in his great love, he revealed these magnificent truths in scripture, even as he revealed these things to Zacharias and to Mary, and as we are going to see to Joseph and to the shepherds, the king priest, the son of God, the savior from sin and the glory of God. Dear friends, I must ask you, what have you done with Jesus? Because someday you will bow before him, either in terror or in triumph. He will either be your savior and your king or your judge and your executioner. And I pray that in your heart, even this morning, and throughout the remainder of your life, you can truly say, Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the King. This is precisely the reaction of both Zacharias and Mary. Zacharias responded after he could speak in Luke 168, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has accomplished redemption for his people. And Mary said in Luke 1, 46 and following, My soul exalts the Lord. My, here's a 14-year-old girl. My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. 
For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Dear friends, this is the proper heart response to the Christ of Christmas. Adoring wonder of who he is. And it's my prayer that this will be your response as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the magnificent truths of your word that ignite our hearts as we contemplate them. Lord, I pray that each one of us will do exactly that, that we will meditate upon these truths, that they will become a part of of our theological understanding of your word, but more importantly, that these great truths will motivate us to come and adore the lover of our soul. We thank you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.